0: Hey everybody, Stefan Mullen, you hope you're doing well. Going to talk a little bit about one of the most influential political philosophers of the modern period, John Locke, 1632 to 1704. So much of what you talk about, what you think about, what you debate, your very, very thoughts on the nature of the state and a political organization, whether you know it or not, are informed by John Locke. Now, full disclosure, I have a very strong genetic influential tie to... Mr. Locke himself, my ancestor, William Molyneux, was John Locke's best friend. And they reasoned and fled from the authorities together. (laughs) So you can uh, check that out if you want. And uh, he had a very powerful voice in a pivotal moment in Western political history. Because prior to this, and I'm not sort of going back to the ancient Greek, ancient Roman model, sort of dark ages, early middle ages and so on. What was the purpose of government? Well, the purpose of government was to shepherd you to heaven using the power, the secular power of the aristocracy of the royalty, the kings and queens and the lords and ladies and so on. And the wisdom of the priesthood. You know, Satan walked all over the world and um, you were supposed to be uh, confined uh, and herded to heaven using the power of the secular authority that God had placed over you. It was called the divine right of kings, that God had placed a ruler over you, and to obey the ruler was the same as obeying God, in the same way that obeying the Pope was the same as obeying God. And this was a very powerful aspect of uh, thought and of uh, reason and of the entire structure by which people understood their own society. Now, this came under significant pressure in Europe after uh, Martin Luther nailed his 99 theses, 91 thesis, 94 theses, I think it was to the church door in uh uh Wittenberg and you had the reformation, uh, the the break up of Christendom as it stood at the time and then you had a lot of religious warfare. Um multi-religion within the state was the equivalent of multiculturalism or where it may be going. Uh, in the sort of modern West, where you have each group vying for state power to benefit itself and to harm those in opposition. You have a zero-sum game or a negative-sum game, given that the state takes a lot of its resources from this kind of stuff. And along came uh, John Locke and, and others, who had a very, very different conception of what the state was and what it was for. So he said, no, 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 people are naturally free and equal they should not be subject to a monarch that is imposed upon them by God. People have rights to life and to liberty and to property. And, I mean, he had a huge influence, of course, on the American revolutionaries. The original draft, of course, was life, liberty, and property. But that, of course, flew in the face of slavery and therefore it became life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is an interesting question between natural and positive law. So, Positive law, answering the question, what is legal? Positive law says, well, what's in the law books? (laughs) You know, that's what's legal. Natural law says that the law must reflect universal principles of justice and freedom and liberty and property and so on. And therefore, what is legal are the laws that conform to virtue, to morality. If it does not conform to virtue and morality, it may be technically legal, but it's not morally legal valid. And that is very, very different. There was, of course, something which we don't recognize as much in the West, although it's certainly in other cultures. Um, There was natural law, positive law, divine law. Divine law are those laws that God has um, revealed through his prophets, through uh, writings and so on, to a particular group of people. Now, that has a very tough time becoming universal. Uh, And we can see this, of course, in the questions uh, that theologians mulled M- in the uh, middle ages which was you know did Socrates get to heaven well he hadn't known Jesus Christ of course he was born 2500 um, years ago so did he get to heaven so there's natural law which is free equal justice for all there's positive law which is well whatever the king says is legal and then there's divine law which is whatever uh, is uh, given to a particular population by uh, by the prophet, by God. Now, what Locke said was that natural law is rational, it's empirical, it's philosophical. Natural law can be discovered by reason alone, and natural law is universal. It applies to everyone at all times. And that is a very, very powerful notion. Now, back in the day, I've actually read the biography of my ancestor. Back in the day, my ancestor and John Locke were talking about the need to prove natural law, natural morality from first principles. And they did not think it could be done, whether they didn't do it because they didn't think it could be done or whether it would kind of muscle in on the purview of the state and the religion of the time, which had a monopoly on the definition of virtue and obedience and law. It's, well, probably never know, but it is something that, you know, my my work in philosophy, (laughs) it doesn't come out of nowhere. The fact that I worked... Uh, enormously hard over decades to develop a easily comprehensible rational proof of secular ethics. I call it universally preferable behavior. It's a free book, free audio book. You can get it at freedomainradio.com slash free. Uh, You can get a hard copy, too, if you want. Uh, This this sort of doesn't come out of nowhere. My work doesn't come out of nowhere. The the need for being able to prove natural law and natural morality from first principles um, has been known uh, in philosophical circles, whether they... Admit the need for it or not, it's another matter. But it's been known for a long time. So this is Locke's approach. He says, "Look, there's there's a natural set of of rights and 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 morality and freedoms and and the right to property and the right to be free from uh, violence and so on that." is embedded in, in everyone. Now, he himself did not, again, work these principles from first principles. He sometimes tied them into religion, and sometimes he said they were self-evident and so on. But um, that is how he approached this issue. Now, the question then, if everyone's naturally free and equal, the next question is, this goes back to the sort of state of nature stuff, uh, which is, again, really, really important. And it's important that whether this is a thought exercise or what people actually believed happened is a topic for another time. But for the moment just pretend it's like a thought exercise because the question is if everyone's naturally free and equal how on earth do we end up with this hierarchical pyramid called state power if everyone's free and equal why don't we exist in a state of perfect equality why are there um, policemen rulers magistrates jail guards uh, politicians why are there people who rule over others good question says Locke here's how it kind of went so Let's talk about st- state of nature. The state of nature is the idea of, of how did human society look before the state came along? It's a big question. Now, the general approach, and this is taken by uh, Hobbes as well, although he had a, a sort of different uh, view of it in some ways. So he says, look, we're, we're all roaming around the woods. We're naturally free and equal. Everyone has the right to property. Everyone has the right to um, to justice. Like if somebody harms you, if somebody steals from you, you can then go and harm them back. He said the problem is, though, we kind of have blood clans. You sort of think of Afghanistan or other places where these blood clans, Somalia, uh, as well. And what happens is you end up with, because people's loyalties are their own family, the family was the first, the very first example of social organization, according to Locke. And when people are curious as to why uh, I talk about the family in a philosophical show, well, it's a very long tradition uh, in western philosophy at least of starting with the family starting with the state of nature and working from there and he said look if you've got people in a state of nature uh, it's kind of a war of all against all and because people are passionate and and people get angry and there's there's revenge and all of that somebody harms you uh, you may not pr- it, may, it, may, it may not be proven to you someone may just convince you that bob you know killed your cow or something and then you go and kill Bob's cow and Bob says hey I didn't kill your cow it escalates from there you end up with this war of all against all so there's this challenge because when everyone's equal there's no overarching authority that mediates disputes between people and those disputes are naturally going to arise so what do you do? what do you do? what do you do? well Locke says you do this you say, look, given that people are passionate, given that people make mistakes, given that people escalate, given that we have blood clan ties to our own family, or our own tribe, this state of nature is not going to work very well. People are going to end up scrabbling along this bare subsistence level and never get anywhere and never build a society, never build a civilization. Also, um, when it comes to justice, given that there's blood clans and people have local disputes, who can be the objective third party to resolve those disputes? Almost everyone involved has some conflict of interest, so it can't really work out that well. So what Locke says, he says, well, where does government come from? Government comes from a rational decision made by the people to say that we are going to surrender some of our rights in order to gain more rights. Like, you know how you'll, you'll give money to a financial investor to invest in itself in order to reap more money. You're not setting fire to your money. You're investing it to get more, so there's a social contract where people say i'm going to give up some of my rights of retaliation i'm going to give up some of my right- my rights of adjudication of revenge and so on to the government, so that my life becomes more stable and my property is better protected, and we have one central power that is so strong that retaliation becomes virtually impossible, you know, like the Hatfield and McCoy clan warfare that kind of goes on If you have one state that's all powerful well. Um, nobody can really take revenge against the state because it's more powerful than any individual. So there's a lot of reasons he would say to uh, to do this. Now, because he had seen, as everyone had seen, these religious warfare, particularly in Germany, there's brutal, brutal stuff going on in Germany during this time. The question of freedom of conscience with regards to religious belief, freedom of religious belief, separation of church and state, for want of a better phrase, that was a big big question at the time. And he said, here's the problem. We have reason, we have philosophy, we have empiricism. And of course, science was making great strides. It was only 200 years until it was safer to go to a doctor than to not go to a doctor. So his epistemology, the study of knowledge, was very informative to Locke in this way, because he said, look, we can't know the truth about that which is based on faith. We can, I mean, objective, empirical, prove to other people scientifically. You know, we can scientifically prove that the earth is a sphere. We could scientifically prove the, the sort of the objects fall uh, to the earth at the same accel- rate of acceleration. We can prove a wide variety of things, but we cannot prove revelation. Revelation is subjective. It is innate. It is beyond the bounds of reason. And therefore, anyone who claims to objectively and decisively know the truth of certain religious ideals or precepts or tenets is wrong. And because you cannot decisively, objectively, scientifically, rationally, philosophically prove particular precepts in religious thought, we must all follow our own conscience with regards to this. You, you cannot allow churches to have coercive power over their members. And of course, he pointed out in the Bible, certainly with Jesus, there's no example of forcing people into particular beliefs. Um, that is not a perspective shared around all religions around the world. But, um, yeah, truth, true faith, you can't force true faith. It must be chosen. And no one has any right to believe that they're more correct than anyone else with regards to objective and empirical law. I mean, he gave an example, and this wasn't just Locke who did this. He gave an example and said, look, look at the Ten Commandments. If you look at the Ten Commandments, and there's a lot of Old Testament law, but if you just look at the Ten Commandments, are they binding on all people? Well, no. The Ten Commandments begin with the phrase, hear, O Israel. Oh, Israel, not all mankind. And therefore, they're really only binding on the people that they're addressed to. They're only binding on the believers within that. So, this was a big uh, challenge that he uh, overcame by just saying tolerance is necessary for, for these ideas. Now, he was a big fan of property. And this this is a huge change from the Middle Ages. Harkens back really to Roman law, at least early Roman law before the welfare state. He was a huge fan of property. And this is kind of a new middle class concern. Property was managed uh, in the Middle Ages by basically having the um, people be bound to the land. They were freer than slaves, but not as free as urban workers in the 19th century. They were serfs. But the problem was that... You know, when agricultural improvements began, you had a lot more children who survived to adulthood, and therefore you had to keep subdividing your land, uh, and uh, the land became increasingly inefficient. You had these little, you know, like jigsaw puzzle pieces of land, this sort of like, um, like think of a, uh, a sort of stained glass depiction of a phoenix with all the slivers of, of fire and so on. The land became completely unmanageable. And so property rights became a huge issue with the access of agricultural productivity that occurred in the mid to late Middle Ages. Huge. I mean, unbelievable. Five times the agricultural productivity. Ten times. In some cases, 15 to 20 times more food was produced by more rational property, uh, by the introduction of winter crops, turnips, and so on, and uh, they figured out crop rotation and letting the land lie fallow. as a huge improvement, and a lot of it had to do with more of a free market in land and a rationalization of the land. Of course, what this did was it kicked a lot of people off the land, because, you know, if you're rationalizing the land... Um, you just need fewer people to farm it. So this created um, the flight to the cities where there were waiting industrialists who wanted to put the new urban labor force to work and so on. So it really was a wild and crazy time and a lot of suffering. But the suffering was more visible, right? When people dying on a farm 100 miles away in the Middle Ages, nobody knew. And, you know, only the local community cared. When you get a bunch of writers and people with new communications technology, um, seeing all of these poor kids in a city, well you get this Dickensian horror of child labor and so on but it wasn't that there was new child labor it's just that children weren't dying and therefore they were working and they were only not dying because they were working so Locke said that the primary purpose of government is to protect people from violence and to protect their property rights It's a huge change from the middle ages that the purpose of government is to keep Satan at bay and shepherd people to heaven under the power of an absolute ruler who is given his power by God and under the tutelage of the clergy. So he said, no, no, man, it's all, it's all about property. We, we accept a government because it protects our property better than a state of nature does. You know, We give up some of our rights in order to end up with more. We give up some of our freedoms, uh, the freedom to seek revenge upon our own. And so we give up some of our freedoms in order to get more freedoms. And now, this is very interesting because there were a lot of revolutions going on uh, at the time. A lot of fermentation, a lot of discontent, because you have this rising new industrial class, um, uh, middle middle class, and so on. So what's fascinating about this and where John Locke deviates from Hobbes. Hobbes says, oh, yeah, nature, red and tooth and claw, state of nature sucks. It's like Mad Max beyond the Thunderdome from here to eternity. So what we need to do is we surrender our rights and we can never get them back. Because the state of nature is always worse than anything the government has to offer. So you surrender your rights, you never get them back. It's in perpetuity. Locke said, no, 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 no. If you surrender your rights to the government in order to protect your property, if that government no longer protects your property, you pull those rights back. You have a revolution. You change your government. Because the government is a tool by which you protect your property rights. And if the government ends up harming your property, taking your property, ends up being tyrannical with regards to your property, it's no longer a legitimate government. Right. Sort of like I hire a security guard to protect my property. If I find out that security guard is stealing from me, then he's not protecting my property. He's stealing from me. And therefore, I'm going to fire the security guard. So that's how it works with regards to the state. So this is very powerful stuff. The conditions. And of course, again, think of the American Revolution, this uh, question of no taxation without representation and so on. So. This sort of social contract, of course, you can't ask each individual to sign it. So this sort of voting and, and majority rule and so on became became the way that it worked out. And Locke has some really, really fascinating stuff to say about property and, and what's viable and valid property and so on. But I really wanted to spend a few minutes just helping you to understand just how powerful this idea is. And, of course, very relevant now that property rights are being uh, horrendously uh, overturned and, and stripped of people by their states, that modern governments were formed uh, in many ways on the premise that if the government isn't protecting your property rights, it's a bad contract and you have a right to change your government. Uh, that is a very, very powerful notion, something to really think about. And I hope that this helps you at least understand some of the basis of where and how people think with regards to modern political philosophy. Stefan Molyneux for Freedom Domain Radio. Thank you so much for watching and for listening.